Friends and damn givers, we have an absolutely stunning episode for you today. Chelsea Clinton is back on the podcast for the third time. Zainab Salbi is on the podcast today. Allison Moore is on the podcast today. I can't wait for you to listen. Ready or not, here it comes. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. This episode, my friends, is special. It has a theme, and that theme is taking action together. Last week, I was honored to attend the first Clinton Global Initiative meeting since 2016 right here in New York City. I attended alongside a couple thousand other leaders from all around the world. Chef Jose Andres was there. Dolores Huerta was there. Malala Yousafzai was there. Matt Damon, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Bono. Melinda Gates, Robin Wright, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, President Zelensky of Ukraine even showed up via live stream for a conversation with President Bill Clinton. Every conversation, every talk, every panel had one goal. How do we take action together? You can watch many, if not all, of the talks and panels on the Clinton Foundation website. I'll put the link in the show notes. And I want to express my thanks to Secretary Clinton, Chelsea Clinton, President Clinton, and the entire Clinton Global Initiative team for putting on such an incredible event that I hope will birth so many good ideas and initiatives into the world now and for many years to come. Now, what does all of this have to do with this podcast, Nick? Well, it has everything to do with this podcast because today I have three guests and three conversations to share with you. First up, Chelsea Clinton, back on the podcast for the third time. I love her. We love her. And we recorded a short conversation as sort of a debrief from the CGI meetings last week and to lay the groundwork for the other two conversations that you're going to hear. My second guest is Zainab Salbi, co-founder of Daughters for Earth, founder of Women for Women International, chief awareness officer at Fine Center, host of Redefined Podcast, an author, journalist, speaker, and TV show host. Oprah Winfrey identified Zainab as one of the 25 women changing the world, and Oprah has even interviewed Zainab not one time, but multiple times. No big deal. And one tidbit from her life, her father was Saddam Hussein's personal pilot. I'm not going to give you any more details about that because you'll have to listen to find out more about that story. My third and last guest for this episode is Allison Moore. Allison has had an incredible career and is now the CEO of Comic Relief US, an organization committed to breaking the cycle of intergenerational poverty that has already raised over $380 million since it started seven years ago. And you won't believe how much money they have committed to raising over the next 10 years and why they have made that commitment. I'm not going to tell you the amount, but I can tell you that the letter B is somewhere in that amount. And again, you'll have to listen to our chat to find out more. 
Before we dive into these conversations, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversations with Chelsea Clinton, Zainab Salbi, and Allison Moore. Let's go. Chelsea Clinton, it's so great to have you back on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. So we are talking a few days after the CGI meetings here in New York City. And we only have a few minutes, so we're going to jump right in. There are so many organizations that are doing as much good as possible in the world, uh, more than ever before, which is a good thing. We're being pitched on social media and otherwise on a daily basis to join causes and movements. So for those listening, and they've heard from you various times throughout the years here on the Let's Give a Damn podcast, for those listening, what's unique about what happened what happens at CGI and what happened this past week? Is there something that happens at CGI and within CGI that is different than other events like it? You know, well, CGI, the Clinton uh, Global Initiative, um, convenes, you know, people very much in the ethos of what you were just speaking to, Nick, of people all committed to making a difference across, you know, different areas of the world, kind of different areas of purpose, um, the, the public, private, you know, non-governmental sectors all coming together. And what we really um, hope that CGI is, is that, you know, convening all these different people doing vital and important work in their own um, kind of day jobs, if you will, uh, bringing everyone together kind of really can catalyze new ways of working together new ways of tackling challenges together, new ways of kind of building um, sustainable efforts on kind of health and kind of the climate crisis and the kind of refugee crisis and the crisis facing women's rights and opportunities and, you know, so much, so much more. Um, and so we are kind of the, the convening platform that we hope is also a catalytic platform. And I think we very much saw that this week with kind of the commitments that uh, were made that were kind of new and different from whatever kind of individuals or individual organizations or kind of um, NGOs and governments had had been doing um, kind of before CGI. And, you know, that is really uh, also a, a crucial and I think um, hopefully not unique in the best sense part of CGI is that every um, everyone has to make a, a commitment, ideally, you know, in in partnership um, to to take on something something in addition to or an extension of or new from what they were doing um, before. So so uh, incredibly uh, energized uh, after the meeting, since we are talking now Friday. Although it feels like it, I've lived many many right. weeks in just the last five days. Um, and so, uh, proud and excited, uh, of kind of everything that has emerged from CGI. And now we just have to kind of do all that we can to help support those who made commitments, um, to, to reach them, hopefully uh, at a minimum to reach them and, uh, ideally to, uh, kind of supersede, uh, their own, um, expectations. Yeah. One of the, 
I'm so glad you brought up the commitment side of CGI because that to me is, again, hopefully it's not unique among other organizations and becomes more prevalent. But I think it is unique for people, especially in this space, to because so many things can go wrong and it's hard to raise money and it's hard to do things in the social good space, to make public commitments, not just in front of a thousand people in the room, but millions more over the years are going to watch that on replays, on videos. These are these are publicized commitments, right? And I love how your father, President Bill Clinton, started out the meetings on the first day by saying, I don't think it's a direct quote, but he said something like, this whole initiative demonstrates that we are in the how business. Yes. Like, we're not just in the talking, pontificating, what what could we potentially do together? We Obviously, that happened. There was a lot of talking and ideating and like theorizing about what could happen if we get to work and do things in a certain way. But then I think the vital part of this meeting is the people standing on stage saying, we are going to do X. It's going to take this much money. And I know that seems kind of unbelievable, but we're going to do it anyway. I got to talk with Allison Moore from uh, Comic Relief US yesterday. And yeah, a billion dollars over 10 years. I just sat there and stared at her and I was like, that's a lot of money, but it, it takes making those commitments publicly to yeah, get the support and get the people around you to make those commitments happen. So I do think that the commitment side of things is, you know, one of the more unique things about CGI. You know, it is, it's really important, um, Nick, to us that, yes, that the public dimension, which hopefully then helps have kind of public accountability, but also yep. the the accounting of progress um, also helps to have accountability. And so, you know, Every commitment that is made, whether on kind of including kind of more people with kind of better uh, job training and upskilling programs and ensuring that those programs uh, include um, women and have real focuses on kind of equity and kind of diversity. And so that kind of these um, kind of commitments are not just about kind of the overall number, but have a real focus on kind of gender and and racial uh, equity and inclusion in a meaningful way, or kind of the efforts to decarbonize uh, in different industries or cut food waste or kind of improve access um, for uh, people to get the primary health care that they need. Again, though, with a real focus on um, kind of racial and uh, gender equity always, you know, it's both the, the, um, the making of those commitments. And then to your earlier point, Nick, on the how, you know, really uh, ensuring though that people have a how plan of how they're going to achieve those so that they can hold themselves accountable and so that, you know, CGI can also help um, help ensure there is a- accountability so that it's not only kind of the, the public facing accountability, but that we can help um, you know, the commitment makers achieve their commitments and, and help there be kind of... Um, honest accounting of, of how that progress is, is being made or not over time. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Uh, To be honest, I cried a few times at this event. Uh, I cried when Malala Yousafzai walked out on stage. She means so much to me and to so many people. I cried when, uh, your mother interviewed Dolores Huerta on stage. And what I felt as I walked around the hallways, um, was, And what I feel when I talk to you and when I hear your mother and your father and other leaders that were at this event and what I've encountered with the Clinton Foundation over the years is hope. And hope is such a hard thing to uh, really grab onto, to visualize. 
let alone use as a guiding principle for living. Um, but it's so essential, right? Like what, what I encountered at this event was, yes, there are, t- there are hard things happening in the world. Like while that event was happening, a third of Pakistan is underwater. Uh, Puerto Rico is getting hit by Hurricane Fiona. Jackson, Mississippi just got their water back. Flint, Michigan still doesn't have their water. There are so many, we could count all, we could list all the terrible things that are happening while we're, you know, eating these meals together and laughing and talking and again, theorizing and ideating about what we could do together. We've got to have hope though. I I, I was thinking about, as I was thinking about our conversation real quickly, I was thinking about this amazing quote from one of my heroes, Rebecca Solnit. She wrote in her book, Hope in the Dark, hope is not a lottery ticket that you can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. It is an ax you break down doors with in an emergency. Hope should shove you out the door because it will take everything you have to steer the future away from endless war, from the annihilation of the earth's treasures and the grinding down of the poor and marginal. To hope is to give yourself to the future and that commitment to the future is what makes the present habitable. Um, and so, yeah, what is hope as, as, as again, as we're concluding these meetings and really this important week here in New York with Anga and Concordia and Climate Week and so many amazing people committed to amazing things, talked about amazing things are now gonna go do amazing things hopefully. Yeah, how are you thinking about hope these days? How are you processing that we have to hang on to hope or else what is all this even for? You know, I think, uh, well, first, I I have never, um, at least I don't think I've ever heard that uh, Rebecca Solnick quote, and I love kind of hope as an ax, um, yeah. as, as one kind of one metaphor. Um, you know, for me, though, hope really is in what... Um, what people, including those you mentioned, is uh, kind of bringing you to tears, uh, you know, Dolores Huerta. Um, you know, hope hope to me, you know, are, are the people who never give up trying to make the world a better place, whether that's, you know, in elected office um, for people that are trying to help um, our government do more to advance and protect, you know, rights and opportunities, um, kind of public health, true safety, kind of true sustainability, or the people working outside of elected office trying to um, hold our government to account for what they're not doing, um, or hold their governments to account for what they're not doing, to support kind of good that is being done in the public sector, to uh, complement kind of what's being done in the public sector and the not-for-profit sector, the kind of, uh, you know, private sector leadership that really are kind of leading the way on, on sustainability. Um, you know, as one very clear example, you know, thinking about the companies who are proving that you can kind of be, um, you know, carbon neutral, zero waste. Um, I find all of, all of those examples, um, from, you know, CGI, from, you know, the UN this week is, as you mentioned, from climate week, you know, very, um, very much hope, kind of producing and edifying. I also think, you know, Nick, candidly, that, um, you know, I think it is it is a more moral place to be, to be hopeful. Mm. Um, you know, Jim Kim, who was one of the founders of Partners in Health and then led the World Bank, um, you know, says that optimism is a moral choice. And I, I believe that. I, I believe it is a more moral place to kind of inhabit and and at least for me a healthier place to think about how do I invest my time, energy, 
resources in trying to make the world a better place. Um, and I think we are more likely to be able to continue to do that if we are hopeful and, and optimistic. And I also think, you know, if Dolores Huerta, who's like well into her 90s, um, you know, after being in New York this week, I think she was going uh, back to Texas to, you know, protest for kind of women's Amazing. rights. Um, and you just think, well, if she can keep going, like, how could we all not, candidly? And if she still has hope um, after all of the um, kind of work that she's done on women's rights, labor rights, kind of gay rights, indigenous rights, um, and has seen some of that work be undone, you know, when it comes to voting rights or a woman's right to choose, if she, though, is still out there working hard, you know, on behalf of all of us, like, how could we not, you know, do our part? Yeah, I totally agree. Last question before we wrap up. What's it, and in in this is kind of a selfish thing I want to wrap up on. Selfish okay. in that I have three kids and you are living my future dream in that, like, what's it like working with your parents on such tremendous and impactful projects? Because obviously I'm building Let's Give a Damn for as many people as I can bring into the fold, but I'm really, selfishly, I'm building it for my children. Because, you know, that Native American proverb, we do not inherit the earth from our ancestors, we borrow it from our children, right? Like I, because I have children, can say that about all the children, but also my children. Like I want, the dream is that someday, 15, 20 years from now, we're all working on this together as a family, right? That would be, that would be, that would be everything for me to not be doing it with the most famous and amazing people in the world, but for my kids to be like, yeah. What dad's doing is amazing. I want to in on that. So oh, that's so great. I love that. <laughs> what's it like? Uh, what's it like children, doing that? Although, of course, if your children listen to this, I fully support you, you know, each finding your own path. A hundred percent. hundred percent. It would make your dad very happy if you um, wanted to be on this particular journey with him. You know, I continue to learn so much uh, from both my parents. And I think that that is part of what then makes this work so fun. Um, is that, you know, yes, I, I enjoy spending time with my parents um, and certainly think that, you know, may be enough. But I do think the fact that I continue to learn with them and I see them continue to learn, like they're both such curious people. And while they certainly know quite a bit about quite a bit, uh, they're also always um, not only open to, but wanting to learn more. And so I learn from them and with them. And I think it is that 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 keeps kind of this so meaningful as well as of course being thankfully a lot of fun. Amazing. Well, this is a CGI themed episode on this episode will be you, Chelsea Clinton, uh, Zainab Salvi from daughters for earth and Allison Moore from, uh, comic relief us. I think the world of all three of you, I think the world of you, Chelsea, thank you so much for all the work thank that you. you're doing. And, um, yeah, I hope this is not the last time that we talk. Uh, I'm, I really, sure I enjoy it, it every be. time. Thank you so much. Take care, Nick. Thank you. It is always a pleasure speaking with Chelsea Clinton. And next up, the deeply inspiring Zainab Salvi. Your story is incredible. I want to go back to the beginning of your life, as far back as you want to go. Um, you have, yeah, a remarkable story. Where you've come from, the kinds of things you've gone through, the kinds of things that you escaped, the things that you didn't go through because you came to the U.S. Uh, as a young adult. Tell us the story. Take us back, take us as far back as you would like to. I would love to hear it. Our listeners would. 
You are the quint. And, and then as we, as we continue to tell your story and people hear about what you've done since you've become an adult and since you started a career, you're the quintessential American dream, <laughs> you know, right? Like you're, when people say the American, when people, if you peel back all of the consumeristic side of the American dream and, you know, the house with the picket fence and all the things that we like the real American dream of coming here to find refuge, coming here to be helped by a variety of circumstances and people to make a really good living, doing really good things for the world. That's the American dream to me. It's true. And so, and you have that. So take us as far back as you would like and share some of where you came from, the people that helped you in your early years. Uh, tell that story, please. No, it's true. I mean, it's true. And, you know, the the immigrant part of me, I've lived here in America 31 years now. Um, I left my home country, Iraq, uh, uh, when I was about, you know, a few months short of 20. And, you know, when I came first here, it's like, this is for my first time to experience freedom. And I'm still... Uh, so excited every time I have I experience freedom of expression in America. Mm. So I grew up in um, in Saddam Hussein's Iraq when he was a leader, um, and there were three things that truly impacted my life. One is my family knew Saddam Hussein. My father had you know he chose my father to be his private pilot and the head of Iraqi civil aviation, and he chose the family to be his social friends mostly because we're not political. Mm. And so we were not political threat to him. My parents were not political threat to him, but they were exposed to Western culture and Western music. And their role was to more expose him to, you know, how to dance to Western music and how to eat wow. with the, you know, and, and Western etiquettes and th things like that. But the but that meant I grew up also in fear. You know, yeah. uh, you know, he he embodied fear for me. And even though we were close to him and I called him uncle, he was fear, you know, and we were that close to danger all that time. And the, the second thing that impacted my life is I grew up in war, in the Iran-Iraq war. And I was only 11 years old, 10 years old when the war happened. And, you know, I remember, you know, as a child, you know, you're like looking at the news. I think I was 11 years old, actually, when the war happened. And you look at the news and the war is only showing images of men fighting and talking and politics and all of that. But I was experiencing war from completely women's perspective because it was the, the women who were the teachers and the grocery store owners and the, you know, the police women and the factory workers and the doctors and they were like were running the show. Going. Yeah, right. right. So the world was like, I was like, what? And I was a child, you know, it's like, oh, they're just talking about the men and the fighting, but they're not talking about the woman keeping life going. Mm. So that was impacting, uh, that had impacted my life significantly as a child. And that war stayed for eight years. And the third thing that impacted my life is my mother, who was the first feminist I met in my life, who made me read Roots uh, when I was 13 years old, Iraqi child, right? I was wow. like, I'm so, uh, truly like, and she is born and raised in Iraq, right? Or was born and raised in Iraq. Um, and so she really opened my eyes to not only social justice, but women's rights as a teenager. And when I was a 16 years old, I turned to her and I said, Mama, when I grow up, I'm going to dedicate my life to helping women worldwide. And you know, Nick, it takes only one person to believe in you, mm. you know, to, and that makes life and day of difference. So my mom, we were driving in Baghdad and it was a sunset. It's like bright sunset, you know, beautiful. And I remember her like turning, you know, looking at me and she says, honey, you can. 
and you will made all the difference Amazing. that moment in my life made all the difference fast forward this progressive mother ends up begging me to accept an arranged marriage um, when I was 19. And I'm like confused. I was like, what, what are you talking about? You told me I need to fight, you know, choose my rights and be independent and strong. And you want me to marry this guy, you know? And, you know, it took me a very long time and, you know, really many years saying yes to that marriage sure. because my mom was crying. I come to America. Um, uh, he ended up being an abusive man. I end up uh, escaping from him after three months of marriage wow. and leaving with $400 in my pocket while my my parents um, in Iraq uh, having gone, like just after I arrived to America, Iraq invaded Kuwait and it was the beginning of the Gulf yeah, War, yeah. the first Gulf War. So it took me a very long time which to, to really get over that traumatic event in my life to move from this wonderful mother to an arranged marriage, to an abusive one, to finding myself with $400 in my pocket in a strange country. Country that I've grown up coming to, but nevertheless, a foreign country. Sure. Um, and it really, it, nine years later did I discover that my mother told me, did that to help me escape from Saddam's gazes. And we were that close to him and that meant we were that much closer to him. And she just wanted to get her daughter out of his sight, basically. And I understand it as an adult. I did not understand sure. it as a yeah. child. Um, but that's how I came to America, basically, you know, is, you know, in a marriage and then escaping that marriage literally three months later. And But there's something about the arrival, and this is when you talk about the American dream, right? Because, you know, I grew up in fear. You don't have freedom of expression. We go to prison. We get killed for expressing ourselves freely, for saying a joke about the president or about anything. Like you literally be, get tortured and in prison and everything gets confiscated. And it's not only you, it's your family, it's your extended family. So you never know which one is going to be punished. And so when I came here, I was like, wow, people can express themselves freely and no one punishes them for that? It Pretty was wild, unbelievable. Huh? It's like eating chocolate for the first time. You're like, you know what, Nick? I've been here for 31 years and every time and often in that 31 years, I've been in the news. I talk about uh, different issues what, from women's rights to Muslim issues to Middle East. And every time I express my opinion very clearly and people like, it's like, okay with it. I was like, Wow, you know, I still get excited. 31 years later, I still get excited about that opportunity. And my prayers for America is not to lose that value. You know, it's, it's these values are being threatened, you know, in the last uh, few years. And it's like as an immigrant who truly, truly appreciate the values of this country, it's like, you know, it's so important that we really keep it and fight for it. Um, and so part of that value is that that freedom of expression, you know, I saw, I saw injustice in Bosnia when I was, now, so now I'm in America, I go back to school, I fall in love, I marry someone and I'm 22, 23 years old and I see a war of a country I've never heard of, you know, Bosnia. Mm. Uh, and I was like, I don't know what it is, but there were rape camps and there were concentration camps there. And I felt very strongly that when we see injustice and we turn our head around and, and try to ignore the injustice. And it doesn't matter if it's a country or an animal or a human or a people that you don't know. Mm -hmm. If you ignore that injustice, then you are invariably legitimizing it and allowing for the corruption of your own values. 
especially if you live in a country that allows you the freedom of expression. And let me explain. You're legitimizing because you see it strong and you don't say anything about it. it you allow for the corruption of your own values because every one of us think that we are good people. But goodness is not a thought. It's an action. Yep. <laughs> What's the point of doing goodness, but then you do not act upon your values? You know, for me, it's very important to be consistent in our values between what we think of who we are and but in between how we act on who we are, right? So if I don't act on my values, then I am corrupting myself in 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 a in a one way or the other. And the third thing is, you know, shame on me not to take advantage of the freedom that I'm allowed in this country or that I'm given in this country. So with that came the birth of Women for Women International. Mm. I was a 23-year-old kid, immigrant from Iraq, just been through an abusive marriage, fell in love again, you know, no money, went back to school to get myself back together. And I was like, we need to do something about it. Everyone around me is like, honey, you know, get a job, you know, get buy a car, buy a house. That's the direction you need to be. And I was like, no, I followed my heart. And that's the second lesson I have uh, to share here. Follow your heart, you know. I followed my heart. I really did not care about whether I make money or not. I just followed it and I run with it. Lord and behold, Women for Women International becomes one of the largest women's organization in America after Planned Parenthood. You know, women's groups tend to be very small. Yeah, sure. Women for Women just raise $146 million from women around the world <laughs> by asking every single woman to send 30, to sponsor one woman at a time by sending her $30 a month and exchange letters and pictures with her in one year and to help that woman in, well, it started in Bosnia and since then it's been in every war there is, including Ukraine today, to help the woman get some support in getting her job, in getting uh, financial support, educational support, vocational skills support, and then get her a job within a year, basically. So the the ask, I'm sure men gave as well, but the yes. ask was specifically to women, correct? Yes. It sounds like that. Yes. To say, not, and not just your money, right? I, I love this. As I was looking around, it was... Yeah, it was, I want you to get to know this yes. person, yes. right? Don't, they don't, they need your money yes. and they need your, your camaraderie. Exactly. They need to know that you're on their side. Exactly. Because we may not be equal in our money, but we are equal in our emotions, sure. right? And our stories, I'm not equal in our stories, but everyone has a story. And out of respect for the person you're trying to help us share your story with her, because for me to share your story, that's my biggest gift my biggest gift of trust, of love to you, right? And so what I'm asking is everyone, share your story back. Don't make it only about uh, these poor other women. So anyway, so Women for Women expands. I mean, it goes to Congo and Afghanistan and Sudan and my home country, Iraq and Rwanda. And we go to everywhere that there is. And it becomes this phenomenal organization. And you know what? All the things that people told me, focus on the house and the car, honey, you know, they came. They may sure. take, they may have taken longer time to come, you know, but they came. And what came with it, though, is purpose, you know, which is, I think, an essential way for, for me. Purpose is one of the essential things for my happiness. It's like I'm living my truth, I'm acting my truth, I'm being my truth, right? And that helps me when I have when I'm actually living and acting my purpose in life. And I think that's all what we're asked of. Like you know, everyone has a gift. Give it. I think all what God wants of us is to give out the best of us. You know, to our mm. humanity, to our each other, to each other, to this mother earth. Are your 
Did your parents come over? Are they still over there? Oh, no, that's a very sad story. Oh. My parents were stuck in the Gulf War, in the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War. They stayed there. Eventually, my mom died. Mm. Um, my father is a ref- uh, not a refugee, uh, lives in Jordan. We lost everything we have. Mm. Everything is always like root- looted and, you know, militia took over our house and made it an execution center for a year and a half and then a brothel for six months and then the military took it over for a year and then I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times and finally they released it, but it was unrecognizable. We lost everything. I, I grew up in a neighborhood where all my cousins and aunts and uncles lived in the the same vicinity, right? So in the afternoon when my parents are getting CS, they're having their siesta, I would get my orange bike and I would bike with to my cousins with my race car. I used to collect race cars, you know, race cars. And like we would play the kids, every single one of them, except one uncle and one aunt and one cousin and one, uh, two cousins are refugees all over the world, my God. including my own siblings. They are refugees all over the world, from Australia to England to Canada to America. Um, and we have not seen each other. We we just, you know, we have not, I mean, we're all over the world. We don't, it's hard to connect. I mean, it's yeah. hard to bring us in one place. Um, so it's a very sad story. It's a heartbreaking story. Yeah, it's very heartbreaking. Yeah. I, yeah, and you know, it's, it's interesting because now I work on climate change. As you mentioned earlier, I co-founded recently uh, Daughters for Earth, which is to mobilize $100 million for women in climate change. And, you know, I was visiting my father and, you know, stumbled upon this reality in Iraq. There's like, you know, Iraq, you talk about wars and you talk about, you know, all the things that Iraq was dominating, the mm-hmm. news, ISIS, all of that. And now the country has 200, they're expecting that the country will have 272 days of dust storms a year. The Tigris and the Euphrates, they're expecting that it will completely dry up in 20 years. And palm trees, which is like the national tree yeah. where we're like mm-hmm. 90% production of dates, um, two-thirds of them are dead completely. So it's a it's a very sad story that connects between my other life, which is working on humanitarian issues in war, and my new life working on uh, climate change and women. And that to see actually the interconnections between wars and between climate crisis and how we actually oh, need to be so aware, sure. not only about this, because we talk about them in separate ways, you know, and we really need to interconnect the discussion. And also, how do we talk about the issue in a compassionate way that understand people's, you know, pains and cultures and narratives and stories and psyches to bring them along with us and understand how we are all part of the collective that made this crisis and not those people and those people. You know, I've, it's funny you, you know, we're talking about your switch to working in the climate space. And I have, I've been feeling, we've always, as a family, have always cared about, not always, last decade or so have made multiple uh, moves and efforts in our own lives to do our part to slow the, our climate crisis, you know, everything from we were vegetarian for six years, now we're vegan and we'll never change that. Uh, clothing, right? Like I've committed to, if, for the foreseeable future, maybe forever, like to not buy any new clothes. Like there's so many amazing ways to obtain clothes and, and even shoes and, and way cheaper and it's <laughs> yeah. more fun. You get yes. to like, you, totally. you get to, you have to look harder and you have to go out and, you know, you just like, Buying something off of a rack at a thrift store to me is way more exciting than going Agreed. to a store and seeing 10 
of the same shirt. You just got to find your size. No, here I'm trying to find a shirt that I think will go with these other pants that I just got, right? True. And so we're making all these moves, right? I forget who, who I was talking with recently on the podcast, but it was someone that focuses as well a lot on the climate. Oh, actually, it was Whitney Bauch. She's a She's had a lot of success in the ethical fashion space as a journalist. Now she's focused on the climate in a broader way. She's somewhere in New York City right now doing other stuff in the, during Climate Week here. And I was saying, I have a hard time not thinking about anything else besides the climate now. Because if we don't, like in a few years, my efforts to abolish the police, because it's a terrible system that had its founding as slave catchers, like we needed a better system, right? But if we don't work on our climate in a big way, there will, who gives a shit what happens to the police, right? So there's, we can name a hundred issues that are very important, yeah. income inequality, that name all these huge issues that won't matter as much if we live in an uninhabitable planet, True. right? True. And so there's that problem, but then as well, each one of these issues, most of them, I should say, connect back to the climate crisis, yes. right? Whether it, whether it's affected by it or it, it'll, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, it's, it's all intertwined. And so my point, my point is we've all got to be focused on the climate in very big overt ways. We've all got to be making changes. We've all got to be focusing on what we're eating, what we're wearing, what we're driving, what we're not driving, where we're living, what we're consuming, what we're not consuming, because None of the other issues that we care about that make us cry, that make us hurt, that make us long for a better world are going to matter if we can't live in, the, in, our, in our planet. It's very interesting. Well, it's intersectional, right? It is all interconnected, yep. you know? And as someone who is trying my best, like you, to be a climate-conscious citizen, you know, I would say, it's a, what I find the experience to be, A, expensive, and B, lonely, and expensive because it's expensive, right? It's yep. not, maybe it's not, it's cheaper to buy the, you know, the thrift clothes, but it is not necessarily as easy. Not only expensive, it's not as convenient. You know, I have an electric car. Exactly. I'm always in anxiety in the winter. Oh my God, I'm going to run out of battery, right? Like, right. you know, they're not as convenient. So it yep. is like, it takes the discipline, you know, to be at this route of shifting to, to go into this climate consciously. But it's also lonely as in, I live in the countryside and not everyone does what I do. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, between now and then you find someone who shares your values and you're like, oh, thank God, you know, you too, you know. Yep. So, you know, so it is important to create community, actually, in my opinion, communities of support, community where we exchange tips and knowledge. And even those, like, it's so hard to actually have electric car when you are in the wilderness, you know. It is, by the way, you know, yeah. <laughs> the battery runs out very fast in the yeah. winter and I'm yeah, like, no sure. one told me that, but, right. you know, <laughs> I have to plan much, much more than I did before, you know but it's an important one. But it's also intersectional as in when I meet friends or people in my communities who cannot afford the same thing I can, I, you know, and they're like, this is, you know, be compassionate to us because we cannot afford that, you know? So it's, it is for me, social justice and environmental justice and, and frankly, and, and well-being, our own, they're all interconnected. But do we need a shift in our consciousness, you know, not only in our personal behavior, but in our economic system, because capitalism, the way it is going, is not viable anymore, in our behavior, in our corporations, in our work systems, in our personal, th there needs to be a shift. There needs to be a redefined uh, moment, you know, to where we can actually 
be shift into humanity where we are more conscious about our personal, our connections to ourselves, to each other, to earth, uh, and to the divine even. I mean, I'm, I happen to be spiritual and so I Same. add my, yeah. you know, but, you know, shift the narrative of how we are living and how we coexisting with each other and with earth, you know, most importantly. Yeah. And there have always been activists and there have always been outliers, people that have stood out and, and that I believe, depending on the issue we're talking about is how the change comes about. There's a certain period of time where most people are not grabbing onto those truths. Agreed. They're ignoring them. They're being willfully ignorant, right? Because yeah. we we live in this beautiful age where you people, if they just do correct, not the Trump type to do your research, but like you know, if 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 they just if they study and if they read and if they're in a if in a, in a position to learn and respect in a science, to learn and respect yes. science you will know what your behaviors and what your habits True. and what you're doing, right? True. So so there's no excuse more than ever in the history of ever to not do the right things. True. But, you know, I, I was, uh, the reason I was typing up here was I, a while back I interviewed this professor named Robert Frank and he wrote this book called Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. And he, one of the examples in that book, he talked about in, in uh, there's this neighborhood, I forget where it was, but it took, there was one person that said, I'm going to put solar panels on my house. It was a very not eco-friendly, conscious neighborhood. I'm going to put solar panels on. Year one, still him. Year two, one more house on the street, got it, right? And then like 10 or 12 years later, everybody in the street had solar panels. And it was directly tied to them driving every single damn day by the house with the solar panels. What's that about? And the next time they hear something about solar panels on a, an ad on, on the internet or on YouTube or whatever, they're going to connect it to that. And then they start thinking about it more. Should I do that? Oh, wait, that last ad I saw said that it would save me this amount of money. Everybody loves saving money. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're in this unique period where people like you and me, and hopefully a lot of people listening, and hopefully a lot of people in this uh, at this venue right now, are those people that will stand in the gap and say, it's really frustrating. It's easy, and, and to your point, it's really, it's a lot easier, still inconvenient in a lot of ways, but it's a lot easier to be vegan and eco-friendly in the city where I live in Manhattan, right? Because I have my, I there's 30 vegan yeah, restaurants yeah. within a yeah. stone's throw of here. Yeah. Um, I get money off of my energy bill by switching to, you know, uh, it switches like 30 or 40% of my energy to, you know, clean energy and not the fossil fuels. And so it's a lot easier to do here where you live. Yeah, it's a lot harder and there's a lot more rub there. Completely. It'd be a lot more understandable for you to say, fuck it, I'm, I can't do that. No, I'm that's, going back to my gas power That's the need for car. community because right. my neighbors literally laugh at me every single yeah. time they pass by my electric car. Ha, 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 ha. One time I ran out of battery in the middle of the night I was like, over my dead body, I'm not calling them for help yeah. <laughs> because I do Last not want I right them now. to laugh at me yeah. for another year, you know? Yeah. And, but you just, so that's the, the, what I call the lonely aspect of it is that you have to be disciplined and you have to be living in your values and you have to like, and just believe that one day they all will have the electric car. Basically, we will believe that like that solar example that you give me, you know, and, yeah. and it actually is irrelevant. I do it because my commitment is to live in truth to yes. my own values. 100%. I mean, I wrote a whole book about them. Freedom, freedom is an inside job is that we've got to align in ourselves because when we're only advocating, but we're not doing what we're advocating for then it's, it, people see the hypocrisy. People see the disconnect. So for me, it's like once I started saying I need to be consistent between what I advocate and what I do, first, I found it 
oh my God, I'm not doing everything. Second, I found it is very hard to do everything. Third, it made me more compassionate towards the people I'm advocating to change because I realize how hard it is. And, and that, fourth, helped me create a better dialogue and a better conversation where I was able to bring more people along the right with my values rather than just saying, you're bad for not doing that. And so it is so vitally important that we are consistent and we try our best, you know, and talk about it. Talk that it's not uh, not possible to do 100%. I mean, I have my 80% rule. I'm going to try 80% to be ethical <laughs> in my purchases. and my. But uh, I'm going to allow myself the 20% because it's really sometimes hard and it's not, and not possible, you know. And that's one of the things that we're doing at Daughters for Earth mm. is, you know, one of the, we have three big objectives, but one of them is provide community tools for the daughterhood, what we're calling, for women's circles, the daughter circles to come in communities and give them the tools. How do you create change in your personal lives vis-a-vis the climate and the earth? How do you create change in your community's lives? Like these are the tips, these are the latest things. Also, how do you translate this sophisticated science and, you know, jargons that the climate movement use that none of us, most of us do not understand. How do you simplify the language and saying, oh, we can do something about it, about Earth. We don't need to only wait for the technology. There are things we can do today, all of us, right? Shift to regenerative agriculture, shift to protect 50% of Earth. These are things we can. And yes, of course, shift to renewable energy. But so we're doing these toolkits, basically. You know, we're in the process of providing these toolkits to communities where everyone can be engaged in the process and talk about it is hard. It is expensive. No, we can do that. No, let's do that. This is the latest. We learn from each other far more mm. than we learn than from anything else, in my opinion. Like, I've changed my behavior mostly from my friends, inspired by my friends and people I met. And it's like, oh, my God, they, they do. This is a great tip. And that's one of our goals, though Though we have other goals that I would love to tell you about. about. Yeah, please. I mean, I want to hear. So, again, I haven't been able to do a deep dive because I just got introduced to you and your story <laughs> last evening. But I do want to hear more about... I have three children, two girls and a boy. Wonderful. And they are eight, nine, and ten. Ooh. And they're amazing. And they're super hard, but they're more amazing. <laughs> I always talk about how like half the days I just want to sell them and like this. I can't, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for all this drama that I even thought was coming when they were teenagers and they're doing it at eight, nine, and ten. It's wild. And now we stuff them in an 800 square foot apartment in New York City. But I am for, for for my son and my daughters, but especially my daughters, I am, one of the things that's been so key here, and it's not by accident, it's by design with with Chelsea and, and Secretary Clinton at the helm of this. I mean, Bill, I feel like, and Bill understands his role here, I feel like the, the, the women are leading the charge. 100%. And he's supporting it, right? 100%. And I love, I've always, I grew up in a very conservative family. Um, I heard nothing but bad about the Clintons for most of my upbringing really bad stuff. A lot of conspiracy theories, ton of terrible things. And then when I started thinking for myself in my 20s and started building a career and everything, I was like, wait a second. I don't see any of this stuff. Mm. I only see mm. these imperfect, mm. but amazing humans Absolutely. who have spent their entire careers serving and helping and loving. Anyway, so yeah. it, it, what I'm seeing here is, is, yes, I've seen men up on stage and I've seen men being highlighted for their amazing work and we should be doing that. But boy, I can't help but see all of the amazing women being platformed here and being highlighted here, you included. 
Um, and so in, in that spirit and just thinking about my daughters as they're growing up, not just in New York, but in this world, in this world where they don't yet have all the rights they should. In fact, in recent weeks, uh, it looks like some of their, you know, future rights that they may or may not use have been, you know, stripped away in certain states. And, and right now they're trying to make it a national ban. Um, we live in very volatile, volatile times. And so I'm very excited for Daughters for Earth and what you are doing. And so, yeah, what are the goals? And also kind of as you're talking about the goals and the future of Daughters for Earth, kind of parlay that into this commitment that has been made here, which I think is just fantastic here at uh, CGI this week. Well, thank you. For First, let allow me to actually share your um, uh, gratitude to the Clintons um, because, you know, I came as an immigrant in Iraq and from Iraq. And when I was 25 years old, I, just the early days of starting Women for Women International, I get a call from the White House to be honored by President Clinton in 1995. And wow. I was like, 25 years old. I was so poor that there was a hole in my shoes, basically entering the White House and so nervous that I knew Saddam Hussein and here I am honored by the White House. It's like, oh my God. And real quick, so it's 25 years old. So you are two years into Women for Women, yes. right? So yeah, it was early. honored yeah. because of what my yes, work in Bosnia and, her, and Herzegovina at the time. And I was so grateful because, and this is another value that I love about America. It doesn't matter who you are. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who you were. What matters is what you are doing right now and who you are right now. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, do they know, you know, and really, really grateful for that award, which then got more media attention to my work. And then, you know, really it, it expedited the work that I was doing. And it was amazing. It was support throughout the years, you know, included in uh, in President Clinton's book, including and featured in, in all of their events and most, not all, but a lot of their events are featuring the work that I do. So I'm truly great. I'm a first-hand witness, personally, what I'm mm. trying to say, yeah. of the power of their support and how it had created a massive change in the work that I've done, you know, both at Women Formula International and now at Daughters for Earth. Um, so, Grateful, very mm. uh, continue Love to be it. grateful and inspired by that. And the second thing, so I so I did Women for Women International, run it for twenty years, became this major organization, seven hundred staff members, and and I grew up in dictatorship, so I believe in rotating leadership. <laughs> you know, I believe like what's the point of criticizing leaders who never let go of their yep. power if you do not do it yourself? For so sure. you know, even though you're living in a system that you know there's no rules about that, so. I decided to resign from the organization after 20 years of leading it, handing it over to a wonderful leader, Lori Adams, right now, which I love and how she's carrying the baton for the organization, which continues to thrive. And, you know, and a few years later, I, I did a lot of stories. You know, I believe that the secret agents for sauce in creating change or the secret sauce for creating change is inspiration. So what we need to do mm. is inspire people and show them that there is another way out. That the you know so, and 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 I think inspiration happens in storytelling. Every time one of us tell our stories, it becomes like a candle to light someone else's cave, and to show them the path out of the cave, you know, into the light, basically. And so I really believe that. So I went and did a lot of storytelling about politics, economy, culture, whatever, from a woman's perspective worldwide. And then um, 
Someone asked me, how can we like mobilize women for climate change? I had no idea about climate change. I mean, I, I have an electric car. I, I, I try to be ethical fashion. You know, I'm, I am vegan as well. All of these things. But climate, I don't understand, yeah. right? You know? And I do some research and I realize that, first of all, of all climate um, solutions that we're talking, there's a lot of technology. There's actually, you know, things that we can do. Protect and preserve 50% of Earth. We can do it. Yes. You know, shift to regenerative agriculture. We can do it today. You and I can do it. Yeah. You know, all of us can do it. This is not, you know, and renewable energy. Yes, we need big technology brains, you know, to shift, to help us get the technology that can help us shift. But the first two, we can do it. Um, then I realized women are actually impacted severely by climate mm -hmm. air crisis, you know, and because they tend to be more, less mobile in their communities. They, they tend to be more, uh, solid in their in their lands in different communities, so they're facing the climate crisis, women and children, in severe ways. We know that this is UN reports. What we don't know is that they're actually really actively engaging in the land preservation and protection and regenerative agriculture, very actively. But, and here's the thing that really ticked me, you know, of all philanthropic philanthropic dollars, only two percent goes to environmental issues. Only two percent goes to environmental issues, I repeat. Of the 2%, two cents out of it, two cents out of every dollar goes to women-led efforts. And one cent goes to indigenous-led efforts. You know, so this is what, like, I come from the humanitarian That's world. Wild. This is just crazy. Yeah. In the humanitarian world, women get 10 cents out of every dollar. In the climate world, women get even less. Even less. And that just, like, drove me mad. I was like, okay, we've got to do something. And that's when I went to my co-founder, Jody Allen. Um, and I was like, this is big, actually. this We need to do something about it. And this is, like, a huge vacuum in here. And so we decided to create Daughters for Earth, where we announced our first commitment at the Clinton Global Initiatives of uh, mobilizing 50, the first $50 million to give to 200 women-led efforts and to raise public awareness campaign in which we are part of the engaging in the discussions about who are these women, what are we doing, what are they doing, they are important part of the solution, and we cannot afford to talk about the most important crisis facing humanity by excluding 51% of the population. And we need to speak to women in a different way, frankly, because it's like the kind, you know, we can't speak to, you know, we need to speak from the heart. We need to speak in a tangible way, in a daily way, in a personable way, not only science, science, but we need to translate the science in a palatable, understandable way that even someone like me who's educated but don't understand it. It took me years to just like, oh, that's what the science is saying. So, so it's how do we trans, you know, find these women? Amazing. I mean, we just funded a group of women in Ecuador who preserved 7 million acres. Oh my God. We funded a young woman in America who changed seven college campuses in, uh, from using pesticides in their college campus to rewilding uh, college campuses. It's amazing women. They get very little effort. We, so that's a commitment. Fund, fund them, raise awareness about them, and mobilize every daughter to be part of the solution. And because we can, <laughs> you know, and, and we should. Something you said a couple minutes ago, you talked about how not only are they giving so much effort, women, and they're facilitating, so they're making so much happen, right? We, me, 
as a male, as a man, I can't do what I do without, and I'm a, ve- I'm a big participant in my home. I cook, I clean, I do all the shopping. Like I do my part, but I have three kids and I have the career. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm still, and I'm, I'm a one of 12 kids. My mother had 12 children that she took care of. Yes, my dad was around, but he was married to his career for so many years and she took care of, all, right? So not only are they do, they're keeping families and societies going, but they're getting so little of the kickback. It's true. This is fixing it. This is fixing it. This is highlighting the, the discrepancies and the inequities and the inequalities and saying to the tune of $50 million to 200 women-led ideas, organizations, people, we're fixing this. We're going to fix this. Yes, we do. We will. And you know what? Men are always part of this. You know, at Women for Women International, a lot of people said, you cannot call it Women for Women because you're excluding men. I was like, you know what? The good men have always been supportive. They won't They've care. never complained. Exactly. They've never, look at President Clinton gave me an, uh, gave a, an uh, Women for Women International an award when I was 25 years old. The good men do not judge that it's Women for Women. The good men, the good fathers, the good brothers, the good siblings, the good husbands or whatever, they support that. Daughters for Earth, same. We just had a father, you know, at the birth of his daughter committed to a significant amount of funds to Daughters for Earth to honor his daughter, right? You know, it's so that for me is everyone is included. But the second thing, Nick, and this is something I've got to tell you as a feminist, mm. there is no, it's nothing as powerful than when a group of daughters or women and girls get together and get the job done. I have seen it over and over and over again. It is a marginalized group of people in the world. We have been marginalized economically, socially, politically, all of it. But these women all over, and I don't know these women, all of all the women, when they get when they roll up their sleeves, they get the job done. And I've witnessed it over and over and over again. And they do it in a different way. We're funded a group of uh, the first all women anti-poaching units in Zimbabwe. Mm. And, you know, I'm like talking with them and, you know, the, the it's a guy who trained them because to be an anti-poacher, you actually need to use a weapon, right? So he goes with the guys, he trains the guys, he thinks only guys can can be anti-poachers. And, you know, you know, he says like the guys, he's, his biggest observation, he says, he because he have all guys and all men anti uh anti-poaching unit. He says the men use, see the weapons and they now know how to use the weapons, the machine gun, all of that, and they identify with it. That becomes a power. Mm. The women, he trained an all-women anti-poaching unit. The women see the gun as a tool, see the weapon as a tool. They use if they have to, only if they need to. But what they've done is engage the communities. They got all the communities buy-in and why they need to protect these wild animals. They got all the communities buy-in and call on on and and telling about any possible poaching operations, even if it's one of them. They got the communities call collaboration. And when they catch the poacher, they don't like kill him or whatever, but they like try, try to talk with him and like, you know pacify him in a nonviolent way, let's say it this way. You know, there's more details around that. But the whole idea is that they have a different style. I'm not saying the style of men doesn't work. I'm saying the style of women is different. And in this time of this century, we need it. We need to learn more from it. We need to incorporate it in all of our behavior, women, men, and all the other genders included. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, again, 
the what you just described as the the man's first instinct, right? To see this weapon is now a part of them. We can see that through thousands of years of history, recorded history, right? Whether it's wars, how to run kingdoms, how to run countries, how to lead families, like, right? Like we are now in a time where we are seeing more women be put in positions of leadership. And, and we're seeing why that should have happened so many, you know, centuries, uh, you know, decades and centuries ago, because we're getting a lot more done as women lead, as men and women collaborate. We, and we're not only getting more done, we're getting it done in a, I think so many of the peacemaking efforts and so many of the, the efforts to, uh, make advancements on any number of, 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 of issues and they're being done. It, it just, it, it, it looks better. It feels better. And it's being done in a more efficient way. And it's being done again in a more peaceful way yeah. versus just go in there and fucking like conquer it. Yeah. Right. And that is, that is a, a female thing. That is a woman thing that is happening. And we're seeing that with the Malalia soft sides of the world. We're seeing that with the Zainab, right. We're seeing yeah. that all over the place. Uh, with all these amazing people. We're seeing that right now. We talked about with the Clinton Foundation. We see that with Hillary and and Chelsea leading the charge and Bill supporting and what how much good has been done, right? And so I'm I'm very hopeful. It's true. And the hope, honestly, my appeal is for everyone, regardless of their genders, because unless we make the 21st century, the feminine century, our own humanity is at stake. And the feminine century, what I mean is finding the feminine values and not as girly girl or whatever, but finding feminine values of relating to each other, to earth, to our economy, to, to to each other's neighbors, whatever, in a different way. So we need to rise new values away from, you know, from within us and start incorporating it. I am from Iraq. I want to like sort of end where I started. I'm from Iraq, right? And when ISIS rose in Iraq and took one third of the country, I tear up just thinking about it because it devastated me. And it was very confusing for me. How could those group of people who are doing something that is, you know, horrible come from my own people? Mm. They're speaking my language. Mm. They're repeating prayers I happen to know. How could this, in a country I grew up in, in in a city that I've been to, you know, like, it just, I could not fathom it, right? And so I was really, for the three years or whatever years that they they took over the country, I cried every single day. I'm tearing up just thinking about it right now. So three weeks after they were overthrown, I drove from my my, uh, city, Baghdad, to the front lines in Mosul, you know, and every I pass three hours. It's a it's a three hours drive, and you pass by towns and villages and churches and mosques and schools, and everything is destroyed. Mm. It's like obliterated into a flat land, all destruction. And I arrive to Mosul, and it's just been liberated from ISIS. There probably there were still ISIS members hiding, right? And I literally walk alone. Now, I happen to be a public figure in, a, in, in, in the Middle East, sort of, you know, I'm recognized, but, but I walked alone with my producer and my, uh, I had a producer and a camera, young man, right? And people would walk to me 
and this is like sort of wrapping this up in with with the coming back to it. And they said, every time, and this is like, I'm telling you, teachers, garbage collectors, housewives, policemen, I mean, like just people, all they're saying the same thing. They were like, the old values failed us because every time came and promised us, every some every power came, promised us power and money. If we only kill those other people, if we only do this other thing, if we only behave in this way, and we kept on doing it in the promise of power and money until we reach a point where our sons turn their own guns on us. And that's when we realize mm. that this time, we are the nuclear bomb on ourselves. Mm. This is, I'm, I'm just translating wow. from Arabic to English. They're like, we became the nuclear bomb on ourselves. No one threw it on us this time. It is, and, and I remember a woman, a housewife, she like passionately in front of her house, she's like, I, we do not need, I do not need you to help me rebuild this house. I will help. I will rebuild this house. I will clean the rubble from what we need help is understanding and coming up with these new value systems because the all values failed us. And all of them say, we need a new human being. Now, fast forward, here we are in New York City talking mm -hmm. at the Clinton Global Initiative about climate change and about Daughters for Earth and everything. We need a new, new human being. We need new value systems. And I happen to believe that these new value systems are feminine values, that it's in all of us, in every gender, in every gender, in every woman, in every man, in every, every gender, that we can, we just need to rise it and act by it and speak it and be it so we can save our humanity and our beautiful earth. I love it so much. I want you to know that for the sake of time, we're going to land the plane right now of this conversation, but I want you to know that all the things that we didn't talk about that you've done, I mentioned them in the intro because there's so much that you've oh, done that we didn't even begin you. to address. Um, You've done so much. You've inspired me. One last question as we wrap up, because you've talked about the power of being inspired yeah. and the power of inspiration. What currently, what or who or where or why, what, what's inspiring you right now? It could be a piece of art, could be music, could be a film, it could be a person, it could be a book, it could be a quote. What's keeping you going right now? Because hope is so important yeah. and hope comes via all kinds of inspiration. Um, and hope, hope is so needed right now because yeah. things look bleak and so much could go right and so much could go wrong here in the U.S. in a couple months. We've got uh, Pakistan underwater. We've got Puerto Rico underwater. We've got so many, cr so much crazy shit happening in the world right now. And so I'm constantly looking for hope and inspiration as I know you are. Um, so what's inspiring you right now? You know, I got to tell you. I mean, I, it, that, uh, the, the risk of becoming, of being redundant, but this is so true to me. But I live in nature, right? And I am so inspired by nature. Hmm. And I tell you, what, I'd like, I'm, I'm like, I was a city girl all my life, mm -hmm. right? Now I'm like trying to garden. I'm a horrible gardener, you know? <laughs> but I'm learning not to judge myself from it. I'm learning to be kind, to do what I need to do, to garden and let the garden grow itself as well, to show up, to like nurture, to feed, to water, to do all of that, but then step back. You know, I'm, le I'm learning from, to trust nature, to trust myself also, to like, you know, because everything in nature regenerate itself, you know? Yes. So to be in the presence of nature, I, and I, you know, I almost died three years ago. I had a massive um, 
uh, illness and, oh, wow. and, and I had to go to live in nature. And I felt every tree was like a cheerleader. You can do it. You can do it. And I like, so what inspires me, I mean, I'm not honestly... I, 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 I worry that it be, is becoming to like a PC or whatever, but it's, it is nature. It is it's so exciting, you know, you know, and I like learn all my life lessons from nature and to learn to trust life and to love love and to be so grateful for life, you know. And so that's what's inspiring me. It's like I go for a walk on a hike every day. Right. And I'd be like coming out of my Zoom calls and, you know, maybe like, you know, tired or thinking or frustrated or upset or whatever it is. I promise you, within 15 to 20 minutes of my walk, after this, I start looking. I was like, oh, it's so beautiful in here, you know, and you keep on walking and you forget about all these things and that happened. He says this, she said that, all of that. So I'm inspired by nature right now. Very. Yeah. I love that. It's so funny you said nature because I love living in the city and I never want to leave. Yeah, I love the city but, too. But I, but I also, when I get out for a week at a time or four days at a time, it blows my mind. And here at the Clinton, I, I, here at CGI, I keep getting this picture of a tree. Literally, all these past couple of days, a tree. I can't stop thinking about a tree because a because tr I get so frustrated when we. I know we have the resources to eradicate income inequality and to eradicate homelessness and hunger and the lack of water. We have we have everything we need to do it and we're not doing it. Why? Why aren't we doing it? I get so frustrated that we aren't doing everything possible to fix everything we can right now. And then I think about a tree and I think about how it takes decades for a tree to become mature, for a tree to become strong enough to withstand all the shit that that the rest of nature is going to throw at it. Yeah. Storms, rain, everything, yeah. right? And it's in those moments where, yeah, I've just had a real sense of like peace being here, not just being around so many inspiring people, yeah. but also like, yeah, the things that I'm fighting for, the things you're fighting, we might not see the results of our work in our lifetime. It's, and that's and it's so okay. beautiful. It's and okay. that's okay. Yeah. And so just like being, so again, with nature, like, yeah, I'm thinking about this tree and I don't get a lot of the trees here in the city. And so, um, yeah, nature inspires but me too, and I need what? more of it. I never stop being a positive person, optimist, no, and right. optimist. Like yeah. I was like, I tell people, look, if I am an Iraqi Muslim woman of color, come to America with an abusive husband, I leave with foreign dollars in my pocket, can and make it? Yes, Everyone can. can. 100%. And if I can, like city go all my life, and I, when I came to the States, I was like a tree, what a tree, you know? And now I'm like, you know, in like inspired by nature, everyone can. Like yeah. none of us are unique in that way. If one can do it, everyone can. I have to say, Daughters for Earth team were um, at my home and we were all like working and hiking at the same time, you know, hiking and walking and swimming and like the work meeting became not yeah. the table, yeah, yeah. but like nature itself. And, you know, we're being silly and at the one point it's like, you know what, we had all these strategies and all these goals and all of that. Let's, you know, each uh, lay lay down on by a tree and see what the tree says, you know? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I know it's esoteric, but, you know, who cares sometimes? It's okay to play. So I lay down in the tree, uh, you know, put my back on the tree and and I hear the tree saying, I'm alive! Tell them I'm alive! I'm alive! You know? <laughs> I feel so that. It's alive. Yeah. Nature is alive. Earth has a heartbeat. It's beautiful. And, you know, shame on us for taking it for granted. I always say if Earth was a friend, she would have broken up broken up with us long time ago for being the most narcissistic, controlling, greedy friend ever.
whatever, taking her for granted. And we just need to be a better friend for Earth. That's it. That's a great way to close this. <laughs> Let's not disappoint our friend. Let's be a good friend. Let's be a good neighbor. Let's be a good citizen. Thank you so much for this inspiring, helpful conversation. Oh, it was um, a pleasure. Really excited to continue following you and your journey. Thank you, Nick. And last, but definitely not least, here's my conversation with the brilliant Allison Moore. Allison Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm so thrilled to have you. I didn't, I will be completely transparent. Okay. I didn't know who you were until two days ago. That's such a shocker. <laughs> it's not a shock at all. But we, we live in the same city. You're yeah. doing amazing things. I'm so glad that I'm getting to meet you now, but I didn't know about you. And I was telling them earlier that I knew about, and we'll get into all of this later, but I knew about Red Nose Day, but I didn't even know it was tied to comic relief. Yeah. I didn't know what comic relief was. So I'm so excited to learn today. Awesome. And to introduce all of our listeners to what you all are doing. Excellent. So first of all, yeah. happy first day of autumn. Yeah. All right. Okay. Today is it, September 22. That's amazing. I, oh, I It is also, that. are you a Lord of the Rings fan? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Booker films or both? I did read the books early yeah, on, yeah, yeah. and then the films, the films second, which yeah, are amazing. Right. Amazing. Uh, today is also Frodo and Bilbo Baggins' birthday. <laughs> they are about 6,000-something years old. Uh, but September 22 is That's also their amazing. birthday. And so this is a good day because I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, huge Tolkien fan, and autumn is the best season. Man, um, this is like a lineup. This is a good day. My and sister-in-law's birthday is today. Really? Yeah. See, this is, this is a good day. I'm I mean, so glad. Great. Even if this buzzing that might be in the recording, people, uh, even if the buzzing is there, this is still going to be a fantastic uh, conversation. Yeah. Okay, good. Excellent. So we don't have a ton of time. Okay. You're a very busy woman. So let's dive right in. Before yeah. we get to Comic Relief US, before we get to Red Nose Day, before we get to what I want to spend a good chunk of time on, which is this commitment that you all have made yes. at CGI this week, um, tell me a bit about yourself. Like, how did you get to this point, right? Yeah. You're leading this amazing uh, effort. Um, how did you get here? Go back as far as you'd like. Oh, um, you know, I'm so young. I'm sure that won't be a long tour. <laughs> no, uh, I probably got a long, long way to kind of take you back. But I think the the easiest way to say I am so lucky to be here at the helm of Comic Relief here in the U.S. Um, I can honestly tell you I spent 20 some odd years in the media uh, space working at organizations like HBO, T Turner, HBO. Uh, Daily Candy, NBC Universal, um, SoundCloud, and Condé Nast. And I think the the common sort of thread through all of those, and on many different jobs, a lot of it around digital, a lot of it around consumer experience, a lot of it around um, what I would say is building um, business operations in some way, shape, or form, sure. driving revenue, subscriptions, advertising, scale around what in my mind was always very purposeful, which was the creator voice and makers. So whether it was showrunners at HBO, whether it was editors at Daily Candy, emerging artists and musicians at SoundCloud, um, really editors at Condé Nast and you know um, showrunners across the NBCU portfolio, I felt like those people made magic things and let's get that out into the world and build the right kind of like space to do that, whatever that looked like. So when I left um, Condé in 2018, um, my father passed away suddenly, unexpectedly, mm. in a, in, uh, from in a, in a surgery, complications from surgery, in November of 2018. And I 
you know, for me, that was really a pause. We were mm-hmm. quite close. And he was sort of my, uh, you know, Sherpa on a lot of stuff as it related to work. You know, just shoot, shooting the shit about work yeah. and all that. Um, but I really started opening the door and, and like, all right, let me just, I'm not going to go rush into another gig right now. Let me just take some time. Think about when I think of what motivates me. And I've always been very curious and unpacked things. And like, I, I am big on transformation. I'm big on change. I'm big on change management at an organization to be able to sort of say, look, we're here, but we need to be here. And how do you, how do you build that and keep everyone on board and feel good and all the things. I knew the things that I wanted to do, but um, so I just went, I think I took around six to eight months to really network, meet some folks. I did some consulting um, on on creator-led projects at, uh, through a couple consulting gigs and a lot of sort of innovation products projects. And what kept coming back to me is like, I don't want to do anything that doesn't feel purposeful. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, if I feel like I'm building operations for and work with creators, that felt very purposeful. Sure. So I had, had had a number of conversations with folks around that. And then I got a call from Russell Reynolds and they were like, I, I know you're led by doing something purposeful. I know you want this kind of touchstone. Like, how about comic relief? And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Uh, you know, I had worked at HBO for many years and, and comic relief. And I, I remembered very deeply comic relief watching in the 80s on cable TV and being like, oh my God, it's, you know, uh, Robin Williams, it's Whoopi Goldberg, it's this show. And they're, by the way, they're, you know, being cheeky and doing all this kind of funny stuff and they're raising, they're doing good. Right. And I, distinctly remember that feeling, being young and being like, wow, that's kind of cool, yeah. right? So fast forward, they're like Richard Curtis, who is the founder of Comic Relief in the UK. And this will get into kind of just the whole origins of who we are, sure. right? Um, he also is, you know, at the charge looking for somebody to run Comic Relief here in the US. They run Red Nose Day. I knew Red Nose Day because NBC was Red Nose Day's lead partner. And I had worked at NBC when they came out in 2015, and I was like, what's with all the red noses <laughs> running around? So I had this kind of composite of what this was and already kind of pre-identified notion. I met Richard and it just became very clear to me that this is a nonprofit. I need to make sure that I understand exactly kind of the nature of the work so I can ensure that I have the right sort of headspace and can put the right energy behind the kind of work we do because we are mm-hmm. not raising mm-hmm. dollars for corporate blah, blah, blah. We are raising dollars to fund programs that affect people's lives. So make sure you get the gravity of that, Allison, before you, you know, roll into it, right? That was number one. And talking with Richard and kind of talking with the team, I was like, I, this feels like a space that I, I can connect with intellectually, mentally, heart, all mm. that. But the other part was I have 20 some odd years of experience across all these spaces. There is probably no other nonprofit organization, social impact organization like us and that does what we do, which is like uses all the platforms that I've always worked on yep. through all, everything in my career to galvanize individuals. And instead of galvanizing individuals to get a subscription or buy a XYZ thing or whatever, or read an article, it's to get connected to something that means something deeper than themselves. And it sparks some kind of joy, fun, levity, and emotion, and then get them to act. And I'm like, okay, I think I can take all that experience and bring it here and be additive and do something great here with this amazing team. And you know what? We've, that's what our transformational journey has been over the last three years. First thing I'll say is I'm sorry about 
your loss. Thank you. That's really tough. Yeah. Um, my, yeah, my parents are getting older. Yeah. And I literally, I, I have this weird thing in the back of my head. I haven't lived next to them. I haven't lived near them for years and years and years and years. Uh, almost 20. Where are they? They're in uh, North Carolina now. Oh. We've lived all over. We've, yeah. we gr- I grew up in Guatemala. My okay. dad's Guatemalan. Yeah. And I left when they were still in Guatemala. Mm. Well, he grew up here. He was born there, grew up here. We went back anyway. And so now they're in North Carolina. But I see them, I see them as much as I can, two, yeah. three times a year. But they're getting up there. And I literally, like, very often, I just have this, like, I hear this, like, phantom, like, ringing in my ear. Yeah. Like a phone ringing. Yeah. Like it's going to be that phone call. They're not that old, but... He has some health complications and stuff too, so I I'm really it. sorry. Well, thank you. Um, I I appreciate that. that it, sucks. it is a um, the older you get, the more you just recognize that those are the those are the places you need to really pay attention to. Yeah, and it's going to happen more as yeah. we get older. It's just happening more and more, whether it's natural causes or just different people get to stages yeah. where they. Yeah, it just it's. Well, be, then, do you have kids? Three kids. Yeah, that's right. You said that. Okay, so I I have a daughter. Uh, we have a daughter. She's 17 years old, and. Um, you know, I think you then you you find yourself increasingly as a bookender, right? So you have parents that you need to look for, look after, and you have kids you need to look after, and that that whole continuum that you're living in in your life, right? That you see like the the sort of like spirit of the youth, and then the kind of like wisdom of the old, and you're in the middle of it. That's what this age to me yep. is kind of about. You know, I don't want to age you up to my age. <laughs> no, I but, feel yeah. I feel that very much. I I I read this amazing book, and I'm blanking on the name right now. And it comes from, I think it's a, a priest wrote it. So it's coming from a very spiritual perspective, but it's, it's kind of slicing life up in three stages. Yeah. And you're, you're figuring, you're, you're kind of growing up, then you're figuring stuff out and then you're giving everything you figured out away. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for the yeah. last stage of your life. And yeah. I'm in the middle right now, but yeah, I am seeing these losses happen more often. And I'm seeing myself kind of what I wanted to get into is two things your move out of 20 years in the entertainment space, not to, not to dumb it all down to yeah, one name, yeah. but in the entertainment media space, um, if you're 2018, if you're, if that hadn't happened with your father and you wouldn't have taken that break, like, yeah, it seems like the universe was giving you a chance to kind of recalibrate. Yeah. And maybe for this next season, however long it is, yeah. like do something like, would you have made the decision to come to comic relief? Had that phone call come, if you weren't going through that, I, that's hard yeah. to know, but no, in, in, as know. much as you can. It's a fair, I think it's a fair point. I've, I've thought about this quite a bit. I think it, I, I think it, um, it was permission to pause mm. and, you know, and believe me, t- I've been, I think I've been working since I was 15, you know, so I'm kind of like, I'm always, I'm a little right. geared to sort of like get in there and, and, you know, I jumped out of, graduated and jumped into Turner and just like, let's go, yeah. you know? And, and you can see from the sort of path that I've taken at different jobs, I am fueled by this sort of insatiable curiosity to continue to learn and do. And I, I have a capacity in my mind to kind of take on new things and, and think about things differently and all of those things. So that, what that does, that has some merit, but what it also does is it, you can keep you on this grind and continue to mm-hmm. go, 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 go. And, yep. and, and it's, then it becomes insatiable. And, you know, when you lose a parent like that, it just, you just, you should take that pause. And I know a lot of people that then kind of deal with their grief by kind of jumping into more consumption of th- things, whatever that is, you know, like life, what, I don't mean just material consumption, but just 
just feed the beast. Yep. And I actually didn't. And that was an interesting change for me where I, I was like, okay, I, and because being home and not having, I mean, I would think about that sometimes. I'm like, my father passed away. We're dealing with all this grief. We're dealing with everything. And I don't have a job to go to, to funnel that energy into. Yep. And I didn't develop a drinking problem. <laughs> and, I mean, all the things, you yeah, know, just all yeah. the things that you're the like. things that could have gone yeah, wrong. The, right. the places you could have gone. I didn't eat all the pizzas. Yeah. Um, I mean, I ate, ate some definitely pizza, a few. Yeah, there was, yeah. A lot, there was yeah. definitely some pizza. But you know what I mean? All the things that you think you're just going to fall off the rails. Um, and I didn't. And it became a centering moment. So I think in some ways, I wouldn't have even, even if they were looking for somebody in like June or whatever it was of 2019, I would have gotten something before that. Right. Because you would have jumped back. I would have yeah. jumped right back in. Yeah. And so fortuitous in that way. I certainly wouldn't have wanted that to have to be the catalyst. No, to, but, 100%. You know, to lose my, my dad, but it yielded something really strong. And look, I'm, you know, I'm not a super religious person, but I'm a definitely a sort of universe connector person. And we're, he's he's with me on it. Yeah, yeah. I feel my my wife and I had a, a lengthy conversation last evening. So she lost her brother mm. last uh, right before Christmas mm. to suicide. Sorry. Horrible oh, situation. No. Yeah, I'm sorry. And so she's had a real. I mean, in the That's middle of tough. you know, it was her first year in New York. It was you know seven months into being here in New York, lost her brother. And, and for, for the, the 10 years before that, she'd been home with kids, like kids that were too young to figure out what she wanted to do, whether it was work or volunteering or whatever, like yeah. she was kids full time. For sure. And we had a conversation last night about, and one thing we realized was, yeah, when shit happens, whether it's a personal loss or whatever, like I jump into stuff. Like yeah. I, I go from working 16 hours a day to 20. I know. And she's the opposite. Like she has chilled this year. Like read wow. a lot of books and d did a bunch of nothing. Good for her. And it was so good for her. Yeah. And now we're having that conversation about like, okay, do you need to keep doing that? Or is it time for you to, st like kids are in school all day. Like, is it like, do you want to do something to keep you busy? Because you need to spend all the time you need in this grief. And also you need to do something. Like yeah. it's a very human thing to be productive. Yeah, like yeah, you can only sure. sit around for so long. <laughs> yeah. And she, like, she's amazing and not lazy. She's, but like, yeah, it's been a hard year for her. So yeah, we're going through that as well. Just trying to, because I jump into stuff. I know. And she retreats. I know. And she's the healthier one. Like I, jumping into <laughs> it is not usually the answer. It's really, you know, I, I think everybody, it, I do realize and recognize that everybody deals with grief in their own sort of way too. And so in some ways there's, I'm going to say that, Pat, and there's, never, there's not a wrong way. Whatever way it is, you just have to take care of your mental health. And yeah. that's kind of, an, you know? And so even if you are something that jumps into something to just kind of deal with the grief, I don't think that that's necessarily wrong as, as long as it is that you are maintaining, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, it, and doing it in community, soothing, too. People, yeah, for sure. People are allowed to speak into that. Yeah, and say, yeah. that's too much. That's too right. little. Whatever. Right. That's always helpful. And that you have your crew around you to sort of like, you know, lean up against. Yeah. I'm so excited to get to this commitment that we're going to talk about. Yeah. But people need to understand what it is that comic relief is and does yeah. so they can understand the gravity, the yes. hugeness of this commitment. So some people might know, but there's a lot of younger people listening to this podcast. Sure. They might not know. They know conceptually who Robin Williams is yeah. in the early days of HBO yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. stuff, but a lot of them might not know about this. So, you know, I, I know that it's entertainment to bring awareness uh, but for what? And yeah. what, what's the, what, have, what are the, the outcomes of your, the work over the past uh, seven years here yeah. in the U.S. now? 
So I think very quickly, I should say that um, Richard Curtis, who's our founder, founded Comic Relief in the UK. So it started there. It yeah. started there. Well, it kind of started simultaneously in the US and the UK. Neither knew of each other. Oh, okay. Which is sort of interesting and kind Wait, of complicated. the same name? Yeah. Oh, okay. So Richard started Comic Relief in the UK, and I'll talk about that really yep. quickly. He was a creative, you know, a, a writer, director, beloved, kind of like he's, you know, four weddings and a funeral, love actually. Um, I, there's a ton of content and, and best love films that he is responsible for. And he's basically a national treasure. He would roll his eyes, you heard me say that, in the UK. But he was this creator, had this life-changing experience in Africa, came back and said, what can I do? I'm, a, I'm someone that makes things and came back with this crazy construct of, I'm going to call it comic relief because I know a bunch of comedians and we're going to do a bunch of kind of cheeky things on the BBC. Oh, by the way, I've developed this thing called a red nose. Let's do a red nose day. Let's have comic relief UK do a red nose day. And we'll put like almost like a punk thing where you put this big red nose on double decker buses and on people's heads and like film it. Like, I think they might, this may not be true, but I feel like they had people streaking in Piccadilly Square for charity. Sure. Right. Yeah. And just like to get like punched through everyone's face. Yeah. And like kind of funny and but got attention. And then quickly asked for something like give money to X, right? And that's so that kind of construct that I think really broke down what is like, let's have a gala, let's have a telethon, let's have a da 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 da. It was just kind of like in your face, creative, you know, a moment of laughter, and then grab that moment to ask to donate now, right? And that's from individuals. That, that's not like, you know, your million dollar endowment from XYZ. Mm -hmm. That is like individuals being like, yeah, man, I'll give you a dollar. I'll give you two, mm -hmm. right? Simultaneously in the US, that's where the, on HBO, Robin Williams and, and all the, the kind of show that started that we were talking about earlier. So that kind of crested in the US and, and HBO wasn't carrying it anymore. And it just sort of went, I would say, call it a little bit dormant and in the US. Meanwhile, Red Nose Day in UK and, and Comic Relief in the UK has just been extremely successful. I mean, today where they're sitting at, they have they have um, uh, dispersed a billion and a half dollars across wild in the in the, around the globe of just doing their kind of social impact good. He came to the US in 2015 and took over the name Comic Relief for US. And instead of launching Comic Relief, relaunching Comic Relief to kind of tap in the memory banks of everybody sitting that was sitting in 1987 watching that, he launched a whole new brand, which was Red Nose Day. Mm -hmm. So Comic Relief here in the US, we run Red Nose Day. And we run Red Nose Day through three, uh, for two core, it started out with three core partners and now it's Walgreens, who's really um, a centrifugal force around Red Nose Day um, and our lead partner and activator. And then NBC, who's also an, an incredible partner for us um, for Red Nose Day. And then we're backed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And what we do, um, it started out really a two month campaign, kicking off in April, ending in Red Nose Day, which is typically around May 27th, 28th, somewhere around there. And we kick off in 9,500 stores in Walgreens and raise dollars to end child poverty. Like that has been Red Nose Day's remit since we launched here. And over the last seven years, we have raised $330 million for ending child poverty through Red Nose Day. And through another event from additional dollars, we are now at almost $380 million uh, for comic relief in aggregate here in the U.S. Our mission really started out to be, it's always been a just world free from poverty. Poverty has been the center of our conversation always. Yeah. Red Nose Day's expression of that is child poverty. 
And I think when you think about um, child poverty, you think about the really basic and fundamental issue areas that we've been looking after for Red Nose Day. It started out really three pillars of work, safety, health, and education. And so the way we work, um, I'll stay there. That was their first mm -hmm. kind of three pillars. We go out and fundraise with NBC, creative like a night of TV show, 9,700 stores in Walgreens. Uh, Mars was a part of our, our partnership for a little bit with M&Ms. Um, fundraise with the public, asking people to kind of donate at retail, on TV, all of these places. Once we fundraise those dollars, we grant it out, we're an intermediary. So we grant it out to organizations that are aligned with those principles. For many years, it was safety, health, safety, health, and education. And so we have a number of grantees that are aligned with that. So Boys and Girls Club of America, Children's Health Fund, um, uh, Covenant House. And they, they run all along those areas. And our grant-making team works very closely with our grantees to say, which are the programs that we think fit our vision for ending child poverty around those three pillars and real grant money, the monies that we raise to those organizations. And that was really for the probably the first five, no, four years of the organization. And in this sort of, with me coming on board and we started thinking about like, how are we going to transform and, and evolve this? Our first step for Red Nose Day was thinking about what are the other things that we need to consider for ending child poverty? Mm. You know, when you think about safety, you think about health, you think about education, it's very, um, there's a lot of solutions that, uh, solve consequential issues of living in poverty, right? right? Books, housing, shots, well-care, all the things, and vitally important. When you start to think about things like, okay, well, what once that's set, how do we open up doors of opportunity and access and think about like what the inequities that happen when you are living in poverty, that you've got your books, your house, and your shots, and you still can't. Right. You're still in this space. Yeah. And the first kind of like aha moment we had is like this, the terminology around empowerment and thinking about economic mobility and and thinking about how, how can we give folks the tools and look at organizations that are doing that and what kind of organizations are thinking about that to really um, embolden and sort of like fortify these folks to, to step out of that track of poverty. So we added a fourth pillar to Red Nose Day that was empowerment, and that was about two years ago. And so now with Red Nose Day, child, and kind of a little bit expanded the element of child. So like not just young children, but child, when you think about the ones on the precipice, like 16, 17, 18, yeah, still right? Children, still children. Yeah, still, still very much still yeah. children, um, but different context. So then Red Nose Day became safe, healthy, educated, empowered. And that really for us became a pillar to just sort of expand and think about the frame of root causes and consequences, right? The root reason that you're sitting, you know, what, why, why is that cycle of poverty continuing on and on? And so as we thought about Red Nose Day and we're like, okay, we need to transform to grow and to expand, you need a platform to expand from, you know? Um, Red Nose Day is strong. It's, we, we really feel as though child and particularly around the health frame that this is a space that we really need to just continue that investment. But as we think about those conversations around the empowerment piece and thinking about like, how, why is the cycle of poverty sitting here with us? We embarked on a theory of change. 
and did some really interesting work at the organization to say, all right, what else can we, where else should we be placing our attention? Mm. And while a just world free from poverty is always going to be our North Star, we started to think about a social impact goal. And what came to the forefront were, you know, when we talk about, you know, again, inspired by that empowerment pillar, intergenerational poverty starts to unlock issues of like, what are the systemic barriers that are keeping folks, class, gender, race, disability, migration status. There are things that are keeping cohorts of, of people living in poverty generation to generation. Mm, so true. And this is, and so while Red Nose Day will stay always child-centered, what this allows us to do is open the aperture to think about the folks around the child. Because in some ways, you, the child is not by his or herself. It, the so child wise. is, yes, you know, the concentric circles yep. of support around that yep. child. And then generate the ancestors, right? Like what... What is happening? And when you look at some of the, the systemic barriers that happen um, for certain populations, this is a place that we can start digging into. And so we have started to look at, okay, what could we do around empowerment that not only is, is some of the big solves or you know, safety or health or education that are really, again, the consequential, like let's Let's solve this with a solution right now, maybe at scale. And shots, well, you know, um, well health, prenatal health, um, all of those things, books, again, like a shelter. Where do we start to partner with community-led organizations and start thinking about solutions that they're seeing on the ground to kind of help li lift a whole generation out of poverty? And what are those things that we could fund? And that started to really excite us that um, as we started to open the door with conversations with other grantees that are kind of along the lines of that work, we've started to bring more folks to our table with Red Nose Day and bringing in these smaller, um, what are typically historically smaller community-led organizations that do not have necessarily a line of access for funding and opening and bringing that chair to our table for them. And that's been a really exciting journey for us that is now coming to light and to, you know, real full view for us now. And that's what we were like, the, the thesis is we need to be doing more. Look how successful we are with Red Nose Day. I think we can be doing more. And if we can get this engine doing more, we can make a commitment like we made at CGI. We're at 380, almost $400 million of social impact that we've had in the last seven years. Another 10-year frame to get to a billion, I think we can do it's that. more than double it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, feel, I feel positive and bullish on it, but we've got to scale this organization to do more and to create more fundraising opportunities, to raise more dollars from the public, to drive more awareness, and just get people on board. And I know we are the organization to be able to do that. So, you know, some of it, it's funding ourselves. <laughs> we need to, you know, we need to find kind of like... Um, I would love private sector dollars to kind of sure. help me scale this organization. It takes people, it takes resources, it takes minds, it takes creativity. But we're already on our way and starting those 100%. those like little legs of of cool work to kind of like connect with folks on these topics. And I feel bull. I feel you know pressured, but that's all right because I feel bullish too. Let me say this. There's a lot I could say out of that, but we don't have time to talk about all of it. What I will say is that was a goddamn masterclass. And what you just did over the past 10 minutes was in, in 
And I know you didn't do it alone. You have a whole team, right? Yeah, you're, I got speaking, a whole crew. you're speaking on behalf I'm, of the crew, yeah. but you're at the helm. And the way that you just described the journey of since you've been here and going from three pillars to four, four being that fourth one being so critical and catalytic because, and catalytic because if they are safe and healthy and educated, but they are not empowered, right. forget it all. Right. That they are way more likely to fall back into whatever patterns they were living in before. Yes. And so that was important. The empowerment thing. That's huge. That I think will be, you're going to continue to see how successful adding that fourth pillar was yes. raising money, getting people excited about it. Because again, I'm, I'm only interested. There's a lot of people offering a lot of solutions out there. So many of them don't work. Yeah. Right. And we're throwing money at problems. We're throwing money at faux solutions to problems yeah. that just aren't going to work. This seems like that could work. Yeah. That could actually bring people, not sustain them in their intergenerational poverty and like yes. keep them comfortable, but actually bring them out. Yeah. And the other thing you said that I really loved was the, okay, if you're taking, if you're also focusing on parents and caretakers, uh, aunts and uncles, grandparents, like if you're focused on the people that are around these children, well, that's super critical too. Yeah. You can't just focus on the kids because right, right. the kids aren't taking care of themselves. Right. If this was an adult sort of vision, well then focus on them. They're yeah. now more, but the kids are so dependent on who. Right. Could, maybe it's not their biological parents. Maybe they're adopted or fostered, or maybe it's aunts, uncles, grandparents, but like taking care of them as well. Yeah. And addressing what they're going through, which is ultimately going to affect the kids. Yes. That's so huge. Well, the only way you can do that is really like a, you know, and this is sort of probably a uh, media person's way to describe it, but a portfolio approach. You know, the the importance of the work that we've done with children is immeasurable, right? We have positively helped 30 million children through our work in the U.S., um, our fundraising in the U.S., but 30 million children in the U.S. and abroad with the work we've done with Red Nose Day. I think focused work with children is vital and important to kind of remember that piece. Mm. But as we expand, as we understand exactly what you just said, it's like all of this sort of like uh, constellation of folks around the child, let us build a frame to kind of help build support for that, yeah. for them, right? And still along the frame of poverty and still unpacking some of these you know, issues that have a ton of intersectionality too, right? Like, you know, the reason people aren't safe or healthy or educated or empowered is, and poverty, it's all, there. there is, these are, they're not clean lines, right? Yeah. Also, some of marginalized groups are not like one identity. There's multiple things, you know, and some people are sitting with, you know, uh, downward pressure, racially, gender, migration status, and that's just, man, there's more that needs to be done there. Yeah. And I think we, one of the things we have seen so closely is that there are real community leaders and many of them have lived experience. They have some really interesting solutions yeah. and insights that we should be listening to. 100%. And if we can develop the right kind of, you know, funding model for those kinds of organizations, while we do support big organizations too, because that work is important too. We sat um, and just announced a, um, our commitment to the Global Fund um, that works at scale against TB, HIV, AIDS, and malaria. There are people being infected with HIV I'm not sure this is the official stat, but I sat next to a woman at a dinner yesterday who works with women and girls in South Africa. And she said, 
there are a thousand women being infected, women and girls being infected with HIV AIDS every day. Oh my God. Every day. And in the US, everyone's mind is like, well, you know, it's fine. Everything's going to get, no. So there's a lot of big, big work that can be done with big organizations like the Global Fund, which we fund. But then there's amazing like work that's being done on the ground, like an organization like Pumunda, you know, um, the Malala Fund, which is not smallish. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, big name, uh, for, particularly. So we want to build that diverse table. And we think this is the sort of like strategy that can, that can do that. I love it. I love it. So let's talk very briefly as we head toward the end of our conversation yeah. here. I don't want to finish our time without talking about this commitment, right? Yes. So seven years of work here mm -hmm. in the U.S., $380 million mm -hmm. raised and dispersed and all mm -hmm. that good stuff. And then one of my favorite things about CGI, I go to a lot of these events. Some of them are more impactful than others. One of the things I love about CGI is that people stand up in front of the thousand people in the room and the world, they say, I commit to do X. Yeah. It might not happen yeah. the way that they're committing to it, but they are saying out loud, keep me accountable. Yep. This is what we aim to do. Yep. We are equipped to do this. We think we can do it. And we're telling you out loud right now. Yep. That's one of my favorite things. I mean, I, there were several times during CGI that I like would just spontaneously cry just thinking about, okay, not all this is going to work out. All these billions of dollars being committed to this, that, and the other. Like, it's not going to happen just like that. Yeah. But these are people that are making... You're at least saying, I want to try yes. to do that. We're going to try. We're going to yes. try with all of our heart, soul, and might to do this. Yep. So talk about the commitment that you all made, which I think is right. amazing. So, you know, with all this recognition in terms of, you know, and the theory of change being that sort of really that shining light that said, this is, this is what we want to do, right? This is, and we've got that frame. We have some, a, a direction of travel in that work. What we started to think about, I was like, okay, well, if, if I'm going to raise a, a billion dollars, if I've raised 380 million so far and I need to find more ways to fundraise to be able to continue that growth, I need to build a plan for that. And so when we think about, you know, Red Nose Day, could we be doing other kinds of massive scale individual donor campaigns like Red Nose Day that can bring joy, levity, entertainment, engagement, mm. all those things on new platforms that, that win the hearts and minds of next generation donors. Yeah, yeah I can. Mm -hmm. And it's called the comic relief event. It's called sport relief. It's called kids relief. It's, I have an entire cadre of things that I, and I've got a team that knows how to do this mm. and bring things to life between the intersection of all of those things, entertainment, engagement, celebrities, individuals. And we thrive in the magic of the individual donor. This is like one, five, $10 donations for people who are just inspired and share a moment with us from a moment of creativity from us and donate. If I can do multiples of those, then yes, I feel confident that I can raise a billion dollars for social impact. And I now have a really interesting space along those four pillars to not only continue to support the grantees that I'm supporting now, but bring others into the fold. Um, to, to be able to kind of that direction of travel of intergenerational poverty and thinking about all four of those pillars with that lens. So the question became, okay, I am going to make that commitment. I need to scale this organization to get there. Mm. And so we recently launched an innovation and growth fund. And, you know, when I, coming from the commercial sector, when you need to scale, when you need to build something, when you need to, you know, launch a bunch of subscriptions and go from zero to, you know, 10 million subscriptions in a certain amount of time, you put a time frame together, 
you uh, you know do all the math to sort of figure out what the run rate's going to be. You calculate the kind of cost, but your best of knowledge, mm-hmm. and then you go and ask for the money, and you say you hold me accountable for the next ten years, and then I, and I will build to this. But that money that you get is is to build. You need marketers, you need tech people, you need like platform people, you need like someone that you need a space. All the things that help you bring something to life. We need we need to scale this too, and we're getting some of the initiatives that I just talked about started to be able to start new fundraising initiatives, but I need capital in to kind of start that as well. So our innovation and growth funding is $10 million over three years to kind of help me fuel the the operations of this organizations. And that will accelerate my ability to deliver a billion dollars in social impact. In 10 years. Yes. And I see this so clearly. I see it. I don't have to see it because it's a fantasy. I see it because we're doing it right now with Red Nose Day. We've got two or three things cooking, which I can't talk about yet, but I will later. Once the recording is off. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Um, that I'm, the proof point is here. It's already starting. So it's just fueled my confidence to be able to say, let's do this. Um, let's go to CGI and make this commitment because I think this is within our line of sight. I love it so much. <laughs> what I love most about your work, your and the team, and everything that you all are doing in this commitment. You know, there's that Native American proverb. Well, nobody knows who said it, but it most attributed to some Native American that we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from That's our children. That's exactly right. Right? Like everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm doing is for my kids and their kids and all kids. Because you and I, if we do our jobs well, I say this all the time, and it's one of the most like humbling things ever. If you and I do our jobs well, whatever our jobs are, yeah. we won't see the fruits. We won't see the entire fruition of our work. Yeah, It's going to outlive us. Yeah, that's right. Because right. I'm not looking for short-term wins. No, no. I'm looking for something that is going to outlive me. Yeah. Something that my kids and their kids, and not just my kids, all kids, like they need to take this thing. I know. And so this is something that could do that yeah. for millions and millions and millions of children in the people that are around them, yes, right? Yes. This is a huge, huge undertaking. It is. It and, is. And I, I, and I'm so, you know, again, not, not from the sector originally, but coming into this sector and then being like in a week this week with Ed Unga and sitting in conversation with people who are really doing amazing work and to know that we can be shoulder to shoulder in our own strategies, everyone, but everybody I'm sitting across the table from is doing something to move the needle against like making it humanity better. Yeah. And I don't know. I was just, I went, came home to my daughter and said, well, <laughs> this is where you need to work because it's intentional, thoughtful people that are smart and mm. doing interesting things. I mean, really interesting and, and like thinking about things like technology and thinking about creativity and thinking about like um, last mile distribution for vaccines or sort of health kits or whatever it is. And the innovations are happening and it's all happening in order to kind of make the world a better place without that sounding so like la la land, like in reality, like people's lives changing. And that it was, it's, yeah, this is the right thing to be doing. Yeah. (laughs) Last question. Yeah. You've got a lot on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. You're doing a lot of work. You've got a lot of things going. This week, especially, so much going on. You're probably simultaneously so inspired and so worn out. <laughs> what are you doing to stay healthy and inspired? Like, or what is one thing? Could be a food, a drink, a person, a uh, music, uh, a film, some piece of art. 
Like what is inspiring you right now to keep going? You know, it's my family. Mm. And it's always my family. It starts and ends with my family. And that, and I think about that broadly. You know, of course, my father comes to mind. Um, he's in the back, you know, right, right behind me, you know, kind of mm. like cheering me on. Yeah. But with my, I, you know, I find, I find downtime hanging out with my family and my husband, my daughter, you know, hanging out. He makes a mean cocktail. It's great. Love that. I benefit from that. I'm an amazing salad maker. I think that everyone should know that. Cocktails and salads. I know. That's like the best. I know. Well, there's always something else. But that's my, you know, although my daughter just told me recently that she made a salad better than mine, so that's fine. Mm. But I, I spent, like, that time for me is restorative. And it's a reminder of, you know, um, work is work. Purpose is purpose. And that, that we have a big P purpose. And that kind of sits with me all the time. But you have to have time to kind of have a respite too, and yeah, hundred percent. Put the off button on a little bit, and then come back at it. If you want to be doing this for the next forty years, yeah, you that's got right. To. And this, but there, the energy around what we're doing that fuels me so much. I look forward to to being here every day. That's a good thing. I really do. And we, you know, we got our share of like stuff we have to work through, and you know, the process and all the things that you're you're flying the plane while building it, and we are definitely doing that. So we definitely have the growing pains. You can feel some of that, but the energy and spirit with this organization, it fuels me every day. So that's my on button and it feels good because it's, it's a really like rewarding on button. And then my off button is with my family and to kind of like, you know, just chill time with them. I love it. I love comic relief. I love what you're doing. I'm rooting for you. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Damn Givers, thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with us this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please, most of all, show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.